Welcome everyone to the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where garden nerds from all around the world talk shop, share stories, and offer their favorite tip. I'm your host, Christy Wilhelmy. On the podcast this week, we're talking with Kyalea Bonnet. She is a clinical herbalist and integrative health educator specializing in hormonal and reproductive health. She's also a devoted home-scale food and medicine gardener and seed keeper. Kyalea holds a master's of science degree in therapeutic herbalism, and we definitely need to know what that does, and, uh, <laughs> and her greatest wish is for others to know the healing potential and kinship with the earth and plants in the same way that she does. Welcome to the podcast, Kyalea. Yay. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad that we are, we're actually physically separated by Zoom, but visibly seeing each other for the first time. We've spoken on the phone before. We met during a class that we were both taking on how to create online courses. And you were kind enough to be one of my test calls when I was developing my online pest control course, Creating a Healthy Garden. And you teach about growing and using medicinal plants. So have you always been into medicinal plants or did that become part of your life later on? I, I definitely was not always into medicinal plants. No, I, <laughs> I grew up in the New York City area. So I actually wasn't into plants at all until <laughs> I was in college and I started to realize that I had no practical skills in my life. I was like, you know, an anthropology major and I could study, you know, the heck out of any topic, but to actually apply things in my life, I felt like I had no skills. So I left college and I started farming. Honestly, I started, um, mostly food farming, you know, around the country. I was woofing. I was doing a lot of volunteering. And in that time I actually encountered, I went on a plant walk and that was in 2006. I went on a plant walk through a forest in Oregon. And this woman was just sharing with us about these plants that were living literally on the same trail I had been walking on for months at that point. And I just had no idea that the medicine was there. And it, it totally blew my mind. I mean, really just the idea that we could access medicine that just lived around us and that I had never known this in my entire life. I mean, I kind of knew a little bit about like dandelion greens. I knew some wild weeds you could eat, mm -hmm. but I did not realize that there was like medicine chest essentially living around us all the time. So I, I was fascinated with it. So from there, I just started a lot of self-study, honestly. So um, I apprenticed with an herbalist out in Western North Carolina, because I was really curious. I didn't know how to learn herbal medicine. So I was like, hmm, I'm in a find something online. And at that time in 2006 or 2005 at the time, it wasn't as easy to navigate Google or I don't even know if Google was around. It might've been Yahoo. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it was but I was AOL like, some... search. Yeah. yeah. Right. And I was like, I somehow found this man who was like an elder herbalist in Western North Carolina who was offering apprenticeships. And I had no money at the time because I was woofing. So he offered it for free. It was a work trade situation. So I was like, I just have to get myself to North Carolina from Oregon. So I went and his name is Joe Hollis and he has Mountain Gardens Herbs, which if anybody is in the North Carolina area, Western North Carolina, or wants to visit, it is an astounding place still. I mean, now he's just, what is that? Like 15 or 16 years later, he's just expanded it even more. But he was, he was a real herbalist, a homesteader and an herbalist. And he had built all the houses himself that were on the land. He only had like three acres, but it just showed me what was possible. I mean, he had an apothecary. He was fulfilling 
um, orders for the local acupuncturists. So I was doing that while I was there. We were making medicines, we were transplanting wild medicinals um, to propagate them, and we were growing medicinals. He had one of the largest, I think it was the, one of the most diverse um, Chinese medicine gardens east of the Mississippi at the time. So I'm not hundred percent sure if that's still true, but back then that was true. And so it was just like, so incredible. And at the time I also knew nothing. So I didn't know a lot of questions to ask. Oh, right. (laughs) So I learned a lot of the practical stuff. I learned like tincture making and salve making, and I fulfilled a lot of orders and I did what he told me to do in the garden beds. And I learned how to like transplant, you know, perennials and you know, pull some out. And I learned a lot of the practical stuff, but I feel like in terms of actually learning the use, like the clinical use of medicine took me a lot longer than that. And that was just a long journey for me. Honestly, it was a gradual journey. I, I ended up, um, from there going to massage school, I became a massage therapist and then was get. I, and then I got into birth work. So I was a doula and a midwife. And in that period of time, that was like, five years of my life that I just devoted to birth work. And in that time, I really learned a lot about herbs with birth because I was studying home birth midwifery Mm -hmm. and I was, I was attending both hospital and home births, but, um, in learning, there's just so many herbs that traditional midwives actually use, um, because they don't have access in a lot of, in a lot of times to the pharmaceuticals. So that was like, yeah, that was just really interesting to me. And I got excited about it. So yeah, I, I started specifically, that's what drove me into um, focus on reproductive and hormonal and menstrual health, just being in relationship with folks who were pregnant and in their childbearing years and just learning about herbs in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I just continued on that path. It took me a while to get to deciding that I wanted to become an herbalist. I think it was just something that happened over time. It The herbs just stayed with me. They stayed with me. I like couldn't get them out of my life. So I started, I, throughout all that time, I was, you know, growing herbs wherever I was living, I was living in various places. And so I would just grow some food and medicine, you know, and then I would just learn about the local plants that were also medicinal. And so I was making medicine that whole time. Um, and just, you know, bringing stuff to births and working with my massage clients and supporting them. And eventually I ended up, this is a long story, but (laughs) eventually I ended up in, um, in Vermont and I've, I've been a little bit of a nomad. So I ended up in Vermont and I worked in a garden with Larkin Bunce, who is one of the main teachers at the Vermont center for integrative herbalism. And she's a clinical herbalist. And at that time, that was the first person that I encountered who was like an acting clinical herbalist. And I was in the garden with her and for a season. And, um, I was just amazed by her encyclopedic knowledge, like her ability to be with a plant and to talk about the constituents and then to also talk about the uses and then also to know how to grow the plants, you know, and work with them and make medicine. So that inspired me to feel like, I want to learn more, you know, Mm -hmm. I want to dive deeper. So at that point I was like, okay, I'm going to do clinical work, but it took me a while to kind of, yeah, just, it was just a gradual process to actually like claim it for myself. And eventually a few years later, I decided to go to grad school, which you wanted to know a little bit about, but yeah, um, I'm like, where do you get a master's in therapeutic medicine? (laughs) There's only one accredited school in the country. So I actually had been looking into that school for a long time for like 10 years, but they didn't have, it was all in person and it was in Maryland. And so I just wasn't going to move there, honestly, for the program. It wasn't 
the truth for me. So in 2017, I guess that's when I started the program, they started doing an online hybrid version where I only had to go sometimes mm, nice. <laughs> and I could do mostly online. And I was living in California at the time. And so it worked out for me to go. And so I just like devoted myself to that for a few years, a couple of years. And so I went into, and what I really was interested in was that combination of like all the traditional knowledge that I had learned and the embodied experience mixed with the science parts of it. And mm -hmm. so it was a master's of science program. It was very heavy in research and science, um, which was very exciting for me because learned, I didn't realize I would love it, but I like loved phytochemistry. That was like one of my favorite classes. <laughs> yeah. One of the reasons why we hit it off when we talked on the phone was because you like the science part, you're the science nerd and I'm the garden, you know, it was like the, we, the nerds in us joined, joined hands over the phone. It was like, okay, I definitely want to talk to this woman more. <laughs> yes. So anyway, that's kind of like the path to getting here now. <laughs> it's a Excellent. long meandering path. Well, you know, it takes, it takes time. I think that's an important story for people to hear because not everyone knows what they want to do when they're kids and they, they take, it takes a meandering path to get to it. I mean, I started out as a, a dancer. I was, I was in dance classes from three and a half years old until I got injured at 37 and that took me out of dance and then garden wow. nerd kind of stepped in. So your calling can shift. I just want to say that out loud. <laughs> um, because I had a calling as a performer and now I'm teaching people how to grow food. So that's good. Um, so before we go further, uh, can you just describe your garden and where you are so our listeners can get a sense of what you're growing or where you are growing, I should say? Sure. Yeah. We, so we moved to Maine in 2020 during COVID times and we moved from California. So it's been an incredibly significant transition. Yeah. Um, like from a climate perspective and definitely from a gardener perspective, I have lived in New England before, but it's been a while. So getting used to it again has been a lot, but I'll just share right now. I'm looking out at snow. So there's the land is just snow covered and all the trees are bare aside from the conifers, which have, of course, their evergreen needles. And I'm in the hills and the forests of mid coast Maine. So I'm about 20 minutes from the bay, this, the ocean and I am mostly, yeah, it's just forested land around here. There's a lot of farms, an incredible organic farming community in this area. It's really one of the best, and I've lived all over the country, so <laughs> I've yeah. seen a lot. Nice. Um, it's really one of the best ones that are around. So we live, if anybody knows it, um, we live about 10 minutes from where the Common Ground Fair happens, which is a big, a big event that happens typically on a yearly basis when there's not a pandemic. Right. <laughs> so yeah. Sad. And so I'm just getting my garden started. Honestly, that's the real truth of it. I've got, um, we're still working on our landscape. I have to build, we're building soil. We've been doing some cover cropping and adding some mulches and trying to, you know, build. So this has not been gardened on before the land oh, that we're on. So it's okay. really kind of starting from scratch. And that's something that's new for me. I mean, it's something I haven't done before, so I'm excited to do it, but it, is taking a lot of work. So last year I gardened completely in containers, except, um, you know, we had some big pots, some of those really large, um, fabric pots that have, you know, I don't know how many gallons there, but very large. So it was like, kind of like raised bed gardening. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, my garden last year specifically, I mean, right now there's nothing growing outside aside from 
the trees. So it's <laughs> right. And I should say, listeners, we're recording this at the beginning of March and you're probably, by the time people hear this, it will probably be, uh, the snow will have hopefully melted and you'll be planting. Who knows? I don't, I don't have a sense. Really of- depends on what, what time frame you're talking about. <laughs> <I know. laughs> June 1st is like the last frost date. So oh my gosh, that's really late. It is that late. is so late. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah. no, <laughs> you'll still so be, it, this yeah. is accurate for that time. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the snow typically is gone by like mid April from what I understand, but it's still too cold to be planting out. I mean, sensitive crops for sure. Mm-hmm. Of course there's stuff that I can put out earlier. So I'll probably have planted things like California poppy or poppies or different, um, other, yeah, other flowers and things like that that can handle it. But mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and so stuff will just be starting to sprout in May, you know, <laughs> got it. Okay. Yeah. So it's a very short growing season here. And I don't know. Um, you know, I think we're in zone five A or B probably zone by five A mm-hmm. is where got we it. are. Mm-hmm. And if you go inland just a bit, it's like zone four, almost immediately. Ooh, okay. So I'm like 20 minutes from zone four. <laughs> Got it. So because you're a little bit closer to the coast, you're, you're Mm -hmm. warmer. Got it. Wow. Well, that's, that's, those are interesting conditions to transition to away from growing in California. So, uh, this will give anyone who wants to, cause I've been trying to find my next place to live. And so Mm -hmm. for anyone who is trying to do that as well, uh, maybe Maine is for you if you don't want to garden all year long, cause it's exhausting. Um, just saying could be a benefit. (laughs) to that. Uh, (laughs) So let's talk about your podcast for a minute. You have a podcast called the Herbal Womb Wisdom, Herbal Womb Wisdom. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's where you share your practice of embodied herbalism. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So I just started the podcast recently. I mean, it's still a new podcast for me, but it is I'm still finding my footing and figuring out what exactly I'm going to be sharing, but yeah, essentially I'm just going to be sharing, um, actionable steps and tips. And I've been sharing information both about, um, menstrual hormonal and reproductive health in general and physiologically, and also working with herbs in relation to those systems. So for instance, there was, a podcast I did a few weeks ago that was all about Tulsi, which is holy basil, which people probably know about. (laughs) (laughs) So it was like, I mean, I I shared for quite a bit of time about my own personal stories with Tulsi, some of the traditional um, stories, and then also some of the research and clinical uses of Tulsi. So ways that people can actually add it into their lives and safety issues, if there are any, and really with Tulsi, there's very few, but um, (laughs) but yeah, so that's an example of one, but then I also have, you know, an one that's all about um, tracking your menstrual cycle. So being able to do that, you know, with um, by yourself without an app. So there's a whole podcast all about that. And then more recently, I actually just did one on um, gardening for your menstrual health. So that's specific for if people are interested in, you know, they have different menstrual issues, whether that's cramps or excessive bleeding or things like that. I mentioned some herbs that could be helpful for that. So that's kind of the the genre, the world that I'm creating. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I know, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of people interested in that, in, you know, wanting to have a, a healthy and safe uh, pregnancy and thereafter and all of that. So that's certainly appealing to a lot of people. Uh, I love that you come to herbalism from a science perspective, because there is, dare I say, 
so much unregulated information out there about herbs and medicinal concoctions. So what do you want people to know before they dabble themselves? That's an interesting question. So yeah, one thing I will say is that there's no, in the United States, there's no licensure for herbalists. And so there's absolutely no regulation around who can call themselves an herbalist and who, you know, whatever, there's nothing that's regulating wow. anything. So um, somebody could take a weekend workshop and then start teaching plant medicine classes. Uh -huh. And then somebody <laughs> might spend 15 years studying like me and still not really be teaching a ton until now. <laughs> so mm -hmm. there's like a lot, there's such a variety. What, what can people look for to know that the information they're getting is valid or not just made up? <laughs> yeah, honestly, it is hard. It's hard to figure it out. I think um, one of the ways that I, if you're just gonna search, let's say on Google for something, I would suggest saying something like um, using a plant and then saying maybe materia medica, which is a challenging word for some people, but, um, materia medica, there's a lot of people who are like more professional herbalists who will use that term. And so, um, looking up what a plant's uses are often, that's a good way to look for it. I also think, you know, realistically, there's not, there are certainly tons of people who are not very qualified who are teaching, but a lot of herbalism is very, DIY friendly. So mm. honestly, there are tons of safe plants. There are tons of safe ways to work with, with plant medicine. And there's people who call themselves folk herbalists, which is what I started out kind of thinking of myself as, and I would just, you know, make my tinctures for the year and I would make salves, um, you know, to rub on my hands for, uh, cuts and bruises and scrapes. And all of that stuff is really like, it's safe stuff. You can't kill yourself with. if you're, you're not going to hurt yourself. <laughs> what I would say is that, you know, if you're really thinking of starting to work with herbal medicine and using it for a condition, like let's say you, you know, are on medications or you have something like diabetes or a thyroid condition or something going on, that's when you probably want to seek out more of a professional. Yeah. But honestly, if you're using stuff topically, I wouldn't be too concerned about it. Um, and there's so much that's just nutritive with herbs. Like there's, you can, people make herbal vinegars with dandelion and, you know, burdock and things like that. That's going to be really safe for most people. So herbalism spans, honestly, it spans the world of like almost food, you mm -hmm. know, food medicine, essentially all the way. I mean, garlic is an herbal medicine, right? You know, ginger is an herbal medicine. Thyme mm -hmm. is an herbal medicine. So all of those all the way to, you know, really working with something intentionally and taking, you know, medicinal doses of it over time. So it's hard to say, oh, this is what you need to look for. I think it really just depends on what people are, are using the herbs for. Got it. Okay. Well, that's, that's comforting to have at least a couple of search, search terms to, to know and to know that you're not going to kill yourself if you're slathering on a salve of something. Yeah. And um, I would say, you know, honestly, the more concerning issues are if you have conditions or if you're using meds, you know, and that's when you're going to want to look more into things. Yeah. Right. For interactions and all of that. I mean, there are certainly, I will also say there are poisonous herbs out there. <laughs> that is a reality. Yes. Some, and some people even use them in a way that I wouldn't feel comfortable using them. So, but the majority of people on the internet are not actually doing that. That is a rare occasion that you might see that. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I would honestly, if I was trying to work with somebody locally and I really was looking for an herbalist, I would look for somebody who had great recommendations. I would look for somebody who's been in practice for 
you know, or been in the world of herbalism for at least five years, if not longer than that. Um, those are the main things that I would really, really look for. Great. So what are, in your opinion, a few of the most important herbs for gardeners to grow? Oh my gosh. I bet a lot of gardeners are already growing a bunch of herbs because, and it's a funny thing because we think, oh, these are just culinary herbs that we're growing. We're growing garlic or we're growing rosemary or we're growing lavender or thyme. I mean, I think we should be growing all of those herbs. I think that depending on, this is another thing, you know, it depends on your climate. It depends on where you live and what is easy to grow where you live. But I mean, I'm growing rosemary here. I just brought it in for the winter. <laughs> you can't leave it outside. <laughs> no. Whereas here it grows like a weed. It's exactly. hard to keep it exactly. from getting too big. Yeah. Yes. But so it's very different. It's probably going to be, I mean, from what I understand, it's like, maybe I can have it for three years, bring it in and out, but mm-hmm. still to have some rosemary is really nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, I think growing the culinary herbs and starting with culinary herbs is a great way to go. And just realizing oh, you've got tons of time. What else can time be good for? I mean, a lot of people probably already know, but what else can time be good for? Time is an incredible antimicrobial herb. It's a wonderful herb for, you know, you could make it into a vinegar or you could make it even make it a honey or a tincture with it. Great for sore throats, great for colds and flus. You know, you can use it as, as a tea. So actually starting to just consider what are you already growing? Maybe you're growing Tulsi, holy basil. People love holy basil. Maybe you're growing calendula. A lot of people grow calendula in their gardens. You know, these are things that are herbs that are just, or you have dandelions outside (laughs) that are growing, you know, as weeds. Yes. So starting to learn just what you already have in your garden and what the weeds are that are medicinal and edible, I think is a great way to to start at least. And then Personally, if I was going to throw out a couple herbs that I think people should just start growing if they're not already, yeah. Spilanthes is one. Um, it's probably one of my favorite. It is one of my favorite plants. I actually did my phyto- phytochemistry project on a um, constituent in Spilanthes. So I have such a love for this plant. <laughs> um, you know, this is the weirdest thing. I had never heard that word until yesterday. I was flipping through the Baker Creek heirloom seed catalog and there it was. I'm like, what is this that I am? Why have I never heard of it? And now you're saying it. And this is just one of those weird things that the first time you hear something, then suddenly it appears three times in that week. It's everywhere. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. That happens with cars a lot when we start thinking about cars. Um, <laughs> so what is what is the benefit of spilanthes? Oh my gosh, spilanthes. Uh, so spilanthes, yeah, it's so it actually can be used similarly to echinacea. A lot of people will, you know, will already know echinacea as kind of an immune stimulant, something for colds and flus, something to just support their general um, upkeep of their immune system or immune regulation. And so spilanthes is similar to that, but it also is, so it can be used in that way. You know, if you feel the onset of, let's say, um, a sore throat coming on, you can just do a rinse with it. If you have any kind of sores in your mouth, you can rinse. Um, Spilanthes is also pain relieving Mm. and a little bit numbing. So it's actually another common name for it is the toothache plant. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) So you can actually make a rinse with it, or if you, I mean... Now I will say, I'm going to give a warning about spilanthes. Um, if people haven't tried spilanthes before, take one of the buds, one of the, one of the spilanthes flowers, it looks like a bud it's in the Asteraceae family, but it actually doesn't have any petals. So it's huh. just got that like inner yeah. kind of part to it. Mm-hmm. And so it is, that's the full flower, but I would go a little slow when you're just going to chew it. Um, it will make you salivate and it will be, it, I could describe it as a carnival in the mouth. <laughs> 
tried to describe that to my friend. I had him, he came, he had never had it before last summer and he put one in his mouth and I was like, this is going to be intense. And he puts it in his mouth. He's like, it's fine. And then he's like drooling. (laughs) Is this going to stop? And it's numbing his mouth and tingling. And he's like, is this ever going to go away? So it lasts like 10 to 15 minutes. (laughs) Start slow. It's really, it's really an amazing plant though, especially if there's toothaches, if there's gum infections, if there's anything like that. I mean, of course you want to get to a dentist, but in the interim time, a lot of times when people are waiting, or even if there's just kind of like some kind of subclinical level of infection, that's not going to go anywhere. It's a wonderful wash. Um, I just love spalanthes so much in that way. And so it's, it's got that numbing quality. It's also very antimicrobial. So it's got that immune stimulating, but then it's also able to just topically, um, combat Mm -hmm. (laughs) microbes. So it's just wonderful in all of those ways. I wouldn't take it internally regularly in terms of like, you know, I wouldn't be taking it every day because you don't really want to stimulate your immune system every day. Mm-mm. But if you're, you know, in that acute time, it's a wonderful plant. Um, yeah, it's just one of my favorites. It also has um, one of the ways that it works in terms of pain relieving. It pain relieves both locally and it actually goes a little systemic. So it has a little anti-inflammatory component to it. Um, it binds, I don't know if anybody's going to be interested in this, but it binds to one of the cannabinoid receptors that cannabis binds to. So it's actually the CB2, the one that CBD um, binds to. And so in that same way that that's anti-inflammatory and pain relieving, it actually has that similar effect. Very cool. Yeah. I I have to go back a little bit to to Tulsi because I know it is, you know, holy basil and it's a big thing in the Indian culture to have a plant in the house as like a good luck or a, you know, a spiritual experience kind of thing. But what medicinally does it offer? Oh, Tulsi, another one of my favorites there. I probably say that about most plants that I talk about, (laughs) (laughs) but Tulsi is just such a wonderful plant. I mean, if we're talking about it, 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 there's so many ways to work with Tulsi, but um, it actually is also good as a mouth rinse. Interestingly, mm-hmm. it has that, some antimicrobial effects and some pain relieving effects. Spalanthes is definitely better, but, but, but Tulsi could be used in a pinch. Um, so Tulsi is actually really helpful for anxiety. It can calm the nervous system down. It's also what's called an adaptogen, which probably Hmm. a lot of people have heard of at this point, Mm -hmm. but basically that just helps to modulate the stress response in the body so that it's not too high and it's not too low. So it kind of brings things a little bit more into balance. So if you were to work with Tulsi, if you were to take Tulsi tea every day, that would be supportive for your nervous system overall and your stress response overall. How have I not known this? <laughs> I so need this tea. <laughs> yes. And also Tulsi is the easiest to grow adaptogen. At least I'm not hundred percent sure, but in terms of the adaptogens that I'm aware of, mm. it is like the easy to grow. So, because of course it's, you grow just like a basil basically. So, <laughs> uh, so it is, it's the easiest to grow of all of those. Oh, nice. I will definitely have to find a space for it. Cause I grow eight different kinds of basil every spring and summer, but I've never tried growing Tulsi because it's, oh uh, you know, I haven't, I haven't dedicated perennial space to too many herbs. I feel like that's, that's one of those things because it's a perennial, it dies back, but it comes. Well, back it depends every- where you live. I guess yeah. so. so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In Southern California, it's probably a perennial. Yeah. Um, it's definitely an annual annual here in Maine. Okay. And even where I was in Northern California, we were only growing it as an annual. I think there were a couple of years that it was mild enough in the winter that it 
did come back the next year, but typically it was an annual. So I don't know exact zones for it, but okay. So let's talk about maybe some of the more challenging uh, medicinals or herbs to grow. Do you have any pointers for how to cultivate some of the more difficult things? Yeah. So when we think about difficult plants, it's funny because medicinal plants are a huge, I mean, there's hundreds, if not thousands of medicinal plants that we could consider. Yeah. So it's hard to just be like, oh, well, these are, are harder to grow and these are ways to grow them. <laughs> but in terms of what I think are interesting plants to grow that are maybe more challenging are maybe some of the vines and the trees um, and also the at-risk medicinals. I really want more people to be growing these. They're endangered and at risk and in the wild. And largely that's because they have wonderful medicinal benefits and they've just been over harvested over time. Mm -hmm. So depending on your climate, looking up what those herbs are would be a great way to start. Okay. Um, something in like Southern California, you could be growing potentially is like yerba mansa. That's one of the herbs that could be grown potentially. Um, but in places like the East coast, if people are in the East coast of, oh, and white sage, white sage is another one that a lot of people grow anyway, but right. yes. that is actually an endangered, it's like an at-risk plant in the wild because huh. people are just endlessly Harvesting, harvesting them for it. these sage bundles that are like, you don't even need that much sage. I mean, realistically, when, if anybody sits there and tries to light one of those things, it like fills the entire room. Yeah. You barely need a, like a thumb, a thumb's worth of, of white sage to sage a room. It's really yes. not that big. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So anyway, that's, it's an unfortunate story. All these things are unfortunate. When I started to learn about the endangered and at risk plants, I definitely got pretty sad about them. But I think if you're on the East coast, there's so many amazing endangered medicinals that are a little harder to grow because you actually have to grow them like in the forest or mm. in some kind of protected kind of shade grown area. So there's like things mushrooms. like America. Yes. Yes. Just like mushrooms. <laughs> like mushrooms. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So American ginseng is oh, a really yeah. incredible plant to grow. And I mean, the thing is like when I was in California, I was not growing American ginseng, but I was growing, I was trying to create little micro like niches in my garden. Mm -hmm. So I was growing in shade things that otherwise would love to like Solomon seal, you know, which like likes cooler, more, you know, shady areas in California. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or is it micro totally in the sun here in Maine? Right. You need full sun <laughs> up there in Maine. Yeah. Right. But it. it's, you know, so there's, there's ways potentially to grow some of the endangered medicinals from the East coast in other places. You just have to create the setting for them, but things like American ginseng. Oh my gosh. If more of us could be growing American ginseng, whether that's like in, it can even be grown in beds under shade cloth. Like some people are doing that. Um, but even better if it be, can be kind of wild simulated in the forest, same thing with trillium is another wonderful plant to be growing. It's actually pretty easy to grow in the right environments. Um, they just need forest soil, right? Mm -hmm. So like you just have to kind of mimic the soil of the wild places that they live in. And right. that's not easy to do in like a garden bed, but it's easy to do if you have the right environment, if you've got like the leaf mulch on the ground, especially deciduous, a lot of them really love that deciduous tree leaf mulch. So you can just look into it. Richo Check, I think is his name, has a pretty good book on growing at-risk medicinals. So if anybody's actually interested, that's a good resource to check out. Um, blue and black cohosh, um, yeah, all of those plants are good, good plants to grow. And I, I really would love more people to be growing 
plants like rhodiola too, which is a very at-risk uh, medicinal as well. And it's very popular in the adaptogen world. That's more of like a cold climate plant. So if people mm -hmm. live in Canada or Alaska or Maine, <laughs> probably Excellent. like, I don't really know North Dakota. I'm not sure, but right. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds like a lot of these herbs grow in the wild in fungal dominant, uh, acidic soil. That's what forests yes. translate mm -hmm. to fungal dominant mm -hmm. acidic soil. So, uh, that, if you live in any of those places, glom onto this and get some, get some herbs in the ground. <laughs> Let's yes. do it. All right. Well, it is tip time. Do you have a favorite tip you'd like to share with the garden nerd audience? Well, I have a couple just like they're kind of combined tips. So because right. a lot of medicinals are more wild, you know, they're coming, they're not as bred as a lot of our vegetables that over time we've learned to work with. Mm -hmm. Um, you really want to make sure not to pamper your plants. You don't want to be feeding them a lot. <laughs> they might need some compost or something early, especially if they're perennial and you've got them in a bed, like maybe they want some of that earlier in the season, but you don't want to give them too much because that can actually, and it can be different for some plants. That's so not true for every single medicinal, but for many of them, a lot of their medicine is in some of the, like <laughs> some of the, um, some of the constituents that are created because of, let's say, pest pressure or environmental conditions, right? It's because of, you don't want to starve them, mm -hmm. but it can be helpful to not be pampering them. And then the other thing in relation to that is, and uh, maybe some of your listeners will know this, but um, medicinal seeds can be harder to start than right. a lot of vegetable gardening seeds. So sometimes the they'll want, and so you just have to look into it. So sometimes they'll even want like the you know, warm, cold, warm cycle, right. or they'll want to be cold stratified or scarified or even soaked before started. Mm -hmm. So you just have to look into it and just know that you can do this. You can do this. And it just takes, sometimes takes a little practice, but it's yes. very rewarding. Awesome. Yeah. I think, uh, there are usually, I feel like native plant societies often have that kind of information, uh, as to whether something needs to be cold stratified, if you have to put it in your fridge for eight weeks before planting it out or, or, uh, you know, pour boiling water over it. I have lupin seeds that mm -hmm. you need to do that with mm -hmm. and, you know, boil them, boil them in water, pour boiling mm -hmm. water over it. And then, then maybe they germinate. So uh, it's not hard to do. It just takes a little bit of research and uh, great. Those are that, those are great tips that go together. Thank you so much, Kailea, for sharing your tips and for being a guest on the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast. Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> so where where do people find you? Yeah, so you can go check out my podcast, Herbal Womb Wisdom, if you're interested in that sort of combination of things, herbs and menstrual womb health. Um, you can find me at my website, herbalwomb.com. Um, I actually have a guide that if anybody's interested in, in that gardening for your menstrual health, it would be herbalwomb.com forward slash garden. And cool. that's, yeah. So that's just like a basics guide. It's not really extensive, but it's at least something to get started with. And then, yeah. And then I'm on Instagram and Facebook. I'm just starting those up, but herbal womb wisdom on both of those. All right. Herbal womb wisdom on Instagram and Facebook. All right, garden nerds, you heard it here. You'll find links to Kailea's website at gardennerd.com this week. We'll also share her podcast and her social media feeds and a link to that guide you can download 
if you're looking for that. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream. Visit us for tons of free gardening information at gardennerd.com. Show your support for this podcast and the other free stuff at Garden Nerd by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under GardenNerd1, on Facebook as GardenNerd.com, and of course, our GardenNerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening!